Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I'm Ian Lewins, one of the paediatric emergency medicine consultants based in Derby. Um, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by uh, Dr. John Adamson, who's a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine in uh, Birmingham at BCH. Uh, good afternoon, John. How are you today? Hi, Ian. Yeah, uh, very good. Thank you. It's um, my podcast debut, so uh, a little nervous, but other than that, uh, quite looking forward to talking to you about the article. Excellent. Um, and I notice on Twitter you describe yourself as a one-paced footballer and long-suffering Villa fan. Uh, so I guess the first question was, how did you find yesterday? Oh, very much enjoyed yesterday. Uh, Ian, um, I think I said to you last week, we just moved house. Uh, and the uh, moving of my broadband and TV uh, deal over, I'd had a very rational conversation with my wife about what we do and don't watch. Uh, and then the moment I found out that all football was on, uh, we've ended up with the VIP Ultra HD package. So I really enjoyed the most boring game of football yes. probably <laughs> ever to be uh, shown to such a wide audience. The most thrilling 0-0 zero, zero ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, excellent. But we're not here to talk about football, which no. um, maybe for another day. Um, but we asked you, and you very kindly agreed to come on, um, to talk about the article that you've written with Tom Waterfield mm. uh, which appears in this June's um, Archives of Disease in Childhood Education and Practice. And it's one of these really good 15-minute consultation uh, papers that, that, that Education and Practice publish. Um, and you've written one on the, the limping child. Uh, and I guess my first question to you is, why was there a particular reason you, you picked the limping child for this? Well, it, um, I mean, first of all, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's uh, the 15-minute consultations are such a great format. Um, and Tom and I had worked uh, the year before on uh, on an article together about uh, preceptal cellulitis. Uh, and really, um, we were then sort of given a slightly blank slate to say, right, what do you think is a good topic uh, within paediatric emergency medicine uh, obviously, we won't rehash something if we've published something on it last year. But then we proposed LIMP on the basis that uh, it's it's very common. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic in the sense that uh, it, it, it can present to multiple specialties. And uh, I think when you look at how we propose uh, as PEM doctors uh, in this article to manage it, uh, it's quite different. Well, not quite different, but there are subtleties to differences uh, compared to, say, how an orthopaedic surgeon may write the same article uh, or even how a general paediatrician may write the same article. So um, you can see from the references, for example, that we've um, picked uh, a similar article by Dan Perry, who I'm sure lots of people will know about from his involvement in so much orthopaedic research. And there's certainly um, differences, say, in, in how we may risk stratify versus how an orthopaedic surgeon may do so. And that probably reflects the patients that, that present and the relative sort of pretest probabilities of those patients and things. Uh, so we just thought it was quite a neat topic really to cover and one that's both pertinent and actually quite common. Yeah. So this is, you know, the approach you guys have taken is the, the limping child who presents pretty, pretty acutely to the, the emergency department. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the um, that is the, the key thing really is um, the most of the time in this, uh, if, certainly if you look at our kind of um, quite simple, really, flowchart on the last page, uh, it is really working on the assumption for the most part that this is 
a pretty acute presentation. And really by that, we mean less than 72 hours of symptoms. Yeah. One of the, I think one of the really nice bits in the article that, that struck with me is um, you're trying to, with this acute presentation of limp, you're trying to maintain a balance throughout of, I, I really don't want to miss something that's important. Um, and, and, you know, you, you've sort of said this is potentially life or limb threatening versus I really don't want to over investigate, which the vast majority of which are, are likely to be nothing too serious. Yeah, it, 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 that's, um, it's an, yeah, that precisely the right point. And I think the, um, and, and, and to be honest, it, it, that in itself is almost, uh, an answer to why we chose this topic uh just coming back to the previous question because it's one of those typical uh, pediatric dilemmas of the the presentation where the vast majority of patients will be completely fine and self-limiting but those that aren't will have something horrendous uh, and how do you balance the risk stratification of knowing that you know probably 99 times out of 100 everything will be fine but on the one instance where it isn't, you may miss something that either is very, very urgent or indeed is very, very serious. Uh, so in fact, it's virtually the first thing that I wrote on my notes preparing for this really is to go uh, to sort of take beyond the simple sort of dilemma of missing something in inverted commas versus over-investigating. I think we've tried to... Um, to take the article to a point where we firstly don't miss something totally different. So you're kind of making sure that there's a framework for a robust assessment. So for example, you know, not missing the fact that in fact they're limping because they've got right iliac fossa pain and actually have appendicitis. Yeah. Um, but assuming that we sort of do a thorough assessment and, and believe that the, the hip or at least the limb is the, uh, is the reason for their pain, um, then, trying to strike a balance between who do we need to do thorough, immediate work up on? Who do we, um, and who do we do nothing for, but when do we see those patients again to make sure that if the sort of second line of conditions that might be a bit more chronic um, and aren't necessarily life-threatening on day one, um, how are we also making sure that we still don't miss those patients? Uh, and that's why it's quite a neat topic, I think, really. Yeah, and I think that, that, you know, fairly early on in the introduction to this, there's a really neat, I think it really summarises it well in sort of saying, you know, we're attempting potentially to do three things. Let's not miss the, the, the high risk ones. Number two, let's try and make a diagnosis if we can. And I think almost more importantly than all of these, let's manage the risk where we're not sure what the diagnosis is. And, you know, that's a lot of what we do in ED is risk management isn't it uh, yeah precisely and yeah you hit the nail on the head exactly it's um that that is that's what we are really in in um in pem uh is risk managers um you know that our days for the most part are not spent making clever diagnoses a lot of the time but they are spent um honing the skill of managing and mitigating risk uh, and i think this is a this the, the the case of the limping child is the classic is a classic example of that um, yeah. for, for, all, for the reasons we've just described and I'm sure we'll come on to. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, I, I was thinking about this last night and I, I don't know what, what viewpoint you take. Do you, when you're sort of seeing the child with the, the sort of the atraumatic limp, do you start with a mindset of 
this is likely to be nothing and I'll escalate it? Or do you start with the, I don't want to miss anything serious and I'll de-escalate it? I, I don't know if you've thought. Yeah, I, it's it's a good question. I um, And I'm... Uh, I'm trying just to think what what the answer to that is. I, I think actually that probably depends on the age of the child. Okay. Um, if it's a toddler, I think my assumption uh, is that it's going to not be anything serious, but I'm obviously wary that I need to be able to prove myself wrong on that. I'm always more wary when it's someone older, particularly a teenager, because I tend, I think, I think with the teenagers, I start from a position of I mustn't miss a Sufi. And if it's not serious, then great. But let me prove that. Let me prove that it's not. Whereas if I've probably got a toddler who looks well and is, you know, bouncing around, but just with one leg doing more work than the other, uh, I'm probably more inclined to assume it won't be anything serious, but go and try and find if I can find any reason why why I should suddenly think that it is. But yeah, it's an interesting way of framing it. And I, I think that there's probably a split there between the ages in, in terms of whether I go in assuming it will be nothing or whether I go in worrying that it's going to be something and having to prove to myself that it's nothing. And I don't know if you guys at, at BCH have um, people who've done, who are, who are sort of adult trainees who are coming to do their paediatric placements with you. We do, yeah, we do. But do you find the mindset in those trainees tends to be different from, say, the paediatric or the PEM trainees at all when approaching children like this? Um, not necessarily. I, 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 to take um, those groups, if you like, we, we have some uh, senior emergency medicine trainees who are uh, near to completion of their training and they are doing, they're, they're doing time at BCH as PEM subspecialists. Uh, and I think they probably approach these types of cases with quite a similar mindset to our experienced grid trainees and people like that. Yeah. The, um, the, where the, greater range is probably the the um both in our st3 pediatric trainees and in the em ct3 trainees in terms of uh there may be differences in terms of their comfort or previous experience of examining a lot of children um but equally i think that the some of the a lot of our pediatric trainees may come from a a mindset of more general pediatric approach to this type of thing as well which uh, I think I alluded to earlier on the um, your pretest probability if you have been referred to a general pediatrician by a GP may well be that actually your your pretest risk is slightly higher because you've been mm. through a um, you know you've sort of been through a primary care triage if you like prior to being referred on so um, I think probably adult emergency medicine trainees who are relatively inexperienced in their pediatrics uh, or junior paediatric trainees who have mostly had experience in general ped so far are probably both um, on the more cautious end of things actually and and I think that's probably also borne out by um, if they ask advice from their from our orthopedic colleagues because um, again their pretest risk is usually higher by the time it's been filtered through primary care or through a secondary care referral so they're probably a bit more inclined to investigate too um, whereas I think we are in those of us who work full-time in PEM as you and I do um, are quite used to seeing the sort of full gamut of very minor limps where you know that nine times out of ten you're going to send them home and and not really have to worry about them again yeah 
So taking our, our child that comes in, I think for people looking at the article, there's this there's sort of several really useful boxes on this. There's the the one that I think is fairly common to people is looking at the age range and what are the, the likely diagnoses. And obviously we always have in our mind, you know, it varies from child to child. And I don't intend to read out a table. Um, one thing I did want to just ask you about was um, in the in the sort of uh, differential diagnosis of atraumatic limp in the young child, you've listed toddler's fracture, which I thought was an interesting view of sort of atraumatic. And is that deliberately there because th- these are often very minor traumas that, that don't necessarily occur to, to parents at the time? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I think the um, the... I think that's exactly right. I always have, uh, in you know, particularly the children who are within, say, six months to a year of starting to walk, um, even uh, with no reported trauma, um, it will always occur to me to to try and look clinically for that. And um, because sometimes this is as simple as a cruising child who has sort of slightly fallen on their own heel, you know, how they drop to their bums like they do when they just slightly either give up or have lost control of their cruising uh, or even a you know a toddler that just doesn't quite who has just started to walk who doesn't quite coordinate and it may be very very minor uh, but it's certainly you know I've certainly seen ones where we've ended up concluding uh, that there's been a toddler's fracture with very very minimal as it were trauma in inverted commas um, yeah. so yes yeah, so it's in there precisely for that reason it's also um, I, I think quite an important part of your examination and quite a neat way of demonstrating the likelihood of one or the other if you sort of imagine you're looking at uh, when you're thinking about the most common differential being a transient synovitis of the hip um, your toddler's fracture is very much the other end of the bone Um, and I find it quite useful when you know sort of teaching trainees about the examination to consider how you may with limited history how you may elicit that the pain is coming from the hip or how you may elicit that the pain is coming from the distal tibia um, you know, by different ways of loading or examining the gate, uh, it's often quite um, quite a neat way of working out which end of the leg, if you like, is hurting uh, for a child who can't tell you and a parent who may not really have witnessed any significant injury. Yeah, because the, the, as you say, in, in one of the, uh, I really, really like the, the table that talks about pitfalls in these children. Um, and as you sort of comment on quite early in the article, the, you know, the it's the, leads to a potential over investigation when, when you're not qu- quite eliciting where the pain is coming from. So the, the classic example being, you know, knee pain and getting very focused on the knee. And actually, this is actually referred hip pain, for example, from a from a Sufi or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely, and I and I think um, whether it's in whether it's a Sufi and a teenager or um, or sometimes uh, the the parents of the child who can't really tell you who's only one or two, um, it's it's certainly quite um, common for knee, for knee pain to be the apparent presentation, but for the hip um, to be the to be the source. Um, I have to say, I, if I remember correctly, it was um, Tom's idea to put the pitfalls section in uh, so I probably should give him credit for that but the I think yeah. it has come out quite nicely actually and um, we sort of bounced uh, a number of those back and forth and I think um, looking at various other articles and, and when you speak to other specialties they're, they're probably more likely sometimes to 
know where those pitfalls are. And I think um, I think the one that strikes for me is this is an uncommon cause for the limp, but the um, the one that talks about not recognizing that the pain is actually coming from a long bone rather than from a joint yeah. um, and, and may in fact be a, um, I say a pathological fracture or a um, tumor in the bone or something like that is one that resonates with me just in the sense that, um, you know, that that is one of those things that falls into the rare category, but one that you really wouldn't want to miss. Um, but I think hopefully the the purpose of the pitfalls table is to enable people to read this and feel that they can still feel confident um, doing these sorts of examinations, but knowing where the rarities are that they don't want to miss uh, and and hopefully then still be able to strike that balance between uh, not over investigating, but also having a few tricks up your sleeve to try and elicit um, the, those rarer causes or the more serious or chronic causes. Yeah, and I think the the nice thing I think about it is that the, the pitfalls table struck me as a you know a collection of stuff stuff consultants have missed and horror stories they've got over the time. So the things like the, the one child that will present who's got leukemia where you've not felt for a liver or a spleen or lymphadenopathy or missing testicular torsion presenting as a limping gait that sort of thing yes absolutely and i think it's um what i think since we're talking about the table as well i think it's um what i quite like about it is it it it's um it just shows really the importance of a thorough initial examination really uh because actually as as you said you the when we it is kind of a collection of those things where people have been caught out, I suppose, ultimately. Um, and it, it is experience more so than it is um, science, if you like. Um, but it's it's uh, quite a good framework for realising that, yes, you know, we're talking about a limp, but we might actually be talking about uh, something wrong with your blood, your abdomen, your scrotum, your hips, your knees, your femur, who knows what it could be. But actually, uh, and I think... Um, it's not, I don't think, actually in the pitfall section, but um, uh, one of the bits that Tom had put in the, in the original examination was about remembering uh, joints above and joints below and thinking about the sacroiliac joint and the lumbar spine and things like that as well. Um, and again, you know, rare things, but not missing things like discitis or, um, you know, psoas abscess or anything that might be lurking. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it emphasises how important it is to take a good history and examination, really, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I guess in, in my mind, when I'm sort of seeing a lot of these kids, I, I, I was thinking about this last night. What's my baseline? Where am I coming from? And as you say, it varies from age to age. Um, I guess the one thing in my mind is always, is this a septic arthritis? Yeah. Uh, as a, sort of my main worry. Um from from your experience, how easy do you think it is to pick up these these kids with septic arthritis? I, I think it's harder and harder, Ian, to be honest, because, um, you know, I think of when I did uh, emergency medicine or did paediatrics at, at medical school, and, you know, that would have been, um, age myself too much, but that would have been the mid 2000s. And, um, you know, we were very much it, it almost seemed like septic arthritis is quite a black and white thing you just if you've got a hot red joint then basically it gets drained and you find out whether there's an infection but the it, you know in practice in 2020 it's 
it's not as common as that. Um, you know, we see way, way more transient synovitis than we do septic arthritis. And, um, and, it, and, and you have to have that. I think you're precisely right that it's, uh, it has to be in your mind for every one of these kids. Um, uh, because if it isn't, then you will miss some. Um, and if it's at the forefront of your mind, then you can work back from that situation and sort of prove to yourself that it's not that. Um, but I think if you're not anticipating that it could be, then that's where you're likely to go wrong. Uh, but yeah. certainly the, you know, the, the actual rates of true septic arthritis are somewhat lower since, um, since particular vaccinate, you know, particularly the HID vaccination right. and that sort of thing have seen means that in 2020, your risk of getting a septic arthritis is not really especially high. Um, and, and you're even amongst the children who do have a limp, it's not especially high, uh, but then if you miss it, then it can be very debilitating. So, um, you know, the, the slightly old adage of, um, it's just an entirely clinical diagnosis. I don't think is really true anymore. And the COCA criteria and the, and the sort of modified version that, um, the older Hay guys did where the ESR is replaced by CRP, um, for, for those who haven't read the article, the four criteria being um, fever above 38.5, uh, inability to walk, so not just limping, but inability to wait there. Uh, the original was a high ESR over 40, although that's uh, since been modified to a CRP over 20, uh, or a white cell count above 12, I think provides a really solid framework for assessing these kids. Um, and, you know, in many of these things, Historically, we've said, no, no, this should be, a, you know, this should be primarily a clinical diagnosis and then it should be a microbiological diagnosis once you've taken a sample. But actually, um, you know, I think the when you look at the a table where well, we've got it in table three in our article, but yeah. the, the uh, risk profile of having multiple features of COCA suddenly allows you to actually risk stratify these children quite effectively. You know, when you when you think that having only a single feature. So if fever is your only feature, um, then actually, uh, if you've got normal bloods and you can still wait there, then these kids probably do in fact, just have a transient synovitis that happens to be more contemporaneous with their viral infection, as yeah. opposed to post-viral. Um, you know, your, your risk of septic arthritis being 3% in those kids. Whereas if, you're, whereas if you are actually not walking, you're still febrile and you have abnormal bloods, well then, Actually, it's shown that this is quite well validated in saying you have a very high likelihood of having septic arthritis. So I think it's it's uh, very I, I think it's a, it's a really neat risk stratification, but it it means that bloods are potentially a very useful thing. So I so I sort of ended up going a bit round in circles with that explanation. But I suppose what I mean by that is that for me, if you are if you are therefore um, able to wait there, albeit limping. And you are afebrile and essentially, you know, taking out all those other pitfalls and all the rest of it. But if we're talking simply about transient synovitis versus septic arthritis, um, if you've got a well-looking child who's afebrile and can walk but is limping, then actually you may well be able to justify not doing their bloods because they already have a maximum of two features. Yeah. Um, if you've got a child who is febrile, cannot put any weight through that leg, I mean, then equally, you're already halfway there to a diagnosis. So uh, in addition, the bloods will probably confirm your suspicions. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really nice, as you say, it's a really nice framework to be able to put on. I think the thing I like most about it is that, that this was clearly an orthopedic thing to start off with. And the pediatricians have got to it and changed the ESR, which we could never get for a CR. Yeah. 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 No, so, precisely. I think it's, a, it's just a, it's a pragmatic um, change, which ultimately remains well validated and uh, you know, certainly makes everyone's life easier. But yes, as you say, it's a, it's certainly a very neat um, orthopedic framework. And I think one that we've adopted quite nicely. Yeah, to something that actually works in our department. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The the rest of the article talks about, you know, the other common things that we sort of see, the Sufis and and the, the I say common, the Sufis and the, the Perthes disease. Um, and again, at the end, there's a, in figure four, there's a box at the end, which is a really nice framework of sort of an approach to the the child with the limp um is that something that i mean that that seems very very similar to the the protocol that i've got in my department is 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 it sort of pretty much what you've got in your department is that so it's actually um it's probably bears the most similarity to the uh leicester royal flow chart because uh when i started writing this i was still a registrar in leicester um so it uh, it is not a direct lift. Um, I will say that, but it's um, it's slightly my spin on uh, what the Leicester guideline was like. Um, and I think actually it referenced. I was surprised. I didn't notice that. I, I thought I'd referenced the Leicester guidelines in the um, in the references section, but certainly have referenced the RCH Melbourne uh, yeah. guideline. And I think it's it's probably a bit of an amalgamation of uh, trying to simplify what obviously Tom and I have said in the article. Um, but in terms of its basic structure, it's probably a slight hybrid of the LRI guidance and the RCH guidance. Um, we actually do have a more recent BCH guidance now, which, um, which funnily enough, wasn't actually done by me, um, but uh, Chris Bird, who's our guidelines uh, lead, has drawn up something, to be perfectly honest, quite similar to this too. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's quite a challenge writing a good flowchart is what I learned doing this um, because your temptation to regurgitate the full detail of what you said in the article yeah. um, is is certainly there um, but doesn't really help anyone because they may as well have just read the article um, but equally um, it's it, the simplicity of it means it has to come with a fairly heavy caveat of you know there, there, there does need to be some detail on yes. the bones um so it, we, we tom and i batted it back and forth a couple of times um trying to get the balance between it being overly simplistic um versus not just rewriting the whole article in in yeah. a sort of chart form um so I, I don't think it's a perfect flow chart if i'm being self-critical but it's it's a bit of a framework to to go from yeah um, it's I think really nice that at the top of the flowchart is the very important two words give analgesia, um, and because you, you you know particularly with your transient synovitis kids you'll go from they can't walk at all till they'll be pretty charging around the department, um, and the, I guess the worry for some people is oh aren't you going to mask something by giving pain relief and it's really important to say no you're not. Yeah, quite. I mean, you've um, you've said it right there. Really, it's. Um, I mean, first of all, it's obviously the the humane thing to do. Um, if a child is in significant pain, 
Um, but also, I think uh, quite rightly what you just said is um, it's funny how many parents uh, bring their child who's limping, but don't really think of that as being pain, mm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, they're, 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 um, and, and maybe just because they haven't necessarily put two and two together, because obviously they aren't necessarily in pain, but the way that they're avoiding pain is to limp. Um, and, 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 and as you quite rightly say, the, the, um, particularly the, the vast majority of cases, which are ultimately mild self-limiting conditions, you see a different child 45 minutes after they've had some ibuprofen. And that again, enormously helps your ability to reassure the parents. Um, and like you say, you know, the child who's got leukemia or the child who's got septic arthritis, uh, most certainly does not look better. 45 minutes after some ibuprofen C. So, uh, it's it's use it's very useful to um to your own assessment as well as obviously the the right thing to do for the child. Yeah. Um the last thing I just wanted to chat with you about the the, the flowchart. Something that we've talked about locally a lot is the the idea of follow-up. So for the for the child who sort of the you know the two to nine that's able to weight bear um that that you're sort of saying i'm presuming this is a transient synovitis uh, our flowchart is very similar to yours it sort of says something like follow up in five to ten days um and i've always wondered how necessary that is if you've got appropriate safety netting in place because a lot of the time if if i've seen these kids in my follow-up clinic we meet up and go are you fine and they go yes i'm fine and you go thanks <laughs> yes. very much um so what, what are your thoughts about sort of following up these kids? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Ian. And um, I, I think, uh, funnily enough, Tom and I seemed uh, in reasonable agreement when we wrote this, uh, which was good, because we, we probably could have uh, debated, you know, had we been on opposite sides, we could have debated it forever and never reached an answer because everyone seems to have slightly different thoughts on this. Um, the First of all, to address the, the time, um, I think... I've seen very, I've seen various uh, guidelines which suggest follow up in forty eight hours, things like that. Uh, and my, and well, our rationale for saying seven to ten days was that if you have made a thorough enough assessment first time round, there shouldn't, and you've safety netted appropriately, there shouldn't be anything that requires you to review them in forty eight hours. Really, those kids were following up because if they're still limping in ten days, despite or, or seven days or ten days despite being on regular analgesia in that time, then the spectrum of more chronic conditions like perthes, uh, or even a sort of, I mean, it would be too early to make a diagnosis of JIA, but you know, more inflammatory conditions, uh, yeah. your pretest probability has probably, if you've had two weeks of limping has shifted quite dramatically than if you've presented in less than 72 hours as, as, as is kind of our assumption um, for the framework of the article. So, yeah. um, uh, and again, you know, if likewise, um, if you only set that at 48 hours, then there'll be quite a number, there'll be comparatively several more children who actually still do just have transient synovitis, who you've not quite given them long enough to just get better from it. So that's kind of why we picked that time frame. I think in terms of whether you arrange to formally see the child, um, obviously, we wrote this article well before uh, any of us knew anything about COVID-19. Yeah. Um, but I think in, we have just sort of anecdotally, I suppose, shifted our practice slightly for these kids in that we're now mostly um, 
doing telephone triage for these kids in about a week. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think that that is, to be perfectly honest, um, equally as good, if not better, a solution to bringing them back to a review clinic. Um, because as you say, the vast majority of the time, you just ring up and say, is he still limping? And they say, no, he's absolutely fine. In which case you say, brilliant, that's the end of that. Um, and, and it's a, you know, you, I think you can then fairly easily triage which, which ones you feel um, you will need to bring back and, and formally reassess. Uh, without necessarily dragging people up to the hospital. Um, I mean, I, I think over the time, you know, since thinking about this article and then since writing it, I, I've gone back and forth as to where, and, and I think I do, even in my own clinical practice, go back and forth as to whether or not I even feel having any follow-up is necessary yeah. um, versus feeling like I probably should. Uh, and, and I don't know there's a definite answer, but I think if I were, if you were to ask me right now, as it were, during, um, you know, the, the time and place that we are in, as it were. Um, my general advice at the moment would be, uh, I think that a phone call about a week to 10 days after the initial presentation is probably a sensible sort of midpoint to to that discussion. I think, I think, and you know, it's one of these things that, that it's one of the circumstances where COVID has potentially done us a favour. Yeah. That, you know, all these kids that we were bringing back, actually, it makes us stop and think, well, why am I bringing them back? And what what benefit does physically seeing them confer to me? You know, it's it's nice for us, but actually it's traveling for parents and it's paying for parking. For oh, parents. Yeah. You know, all those sorts of things that that may be a simple phone call if if safety netted well, we could easily sort out. I think that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, getting into um the center of birmingham to come and see us is you know is a hassle um to be perfectly frank um and uh if we can avoid people having to then it's mostly beneficial for them um i i think it's applicable i mean we we have um essentially not done an ed a proper ed review clinic since um the covid restrictions all started uh, and um it's interesting how remapping the sort of patient journey for all of those kids i appreciate we're going a little bit off the limp topic here but the um yeah. kind of re remapping the follow-up or referral onwards or safety netting pathways for a lot of these kids has shown um that actually we are probably bringing a lot of these kids back physically unnecessarily uh, and um, and, I, and i totally agree with you that i think it will uh, it well is having and, and will continue to have um, an impact on how we plan these services in the future yeah, there's lots of QI projects in there for. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so I oh, thank you so much for for joining me today, John. And as I said, I would it's it's a, a, I do like these fifteen minute consults. Um, and this is in June twenty twenty, uh, volume one hundred and five, issue three, education and practice from the archives of disease in childhood. And I'd encourage everybody. You know, it's a really great article. It's a really nice, succinct. Um, with the the pitfalls in there, it's it's a really great article. So so thank you very much for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you. It's uh, I've been a pleasure.